0: With you, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we're going to be covering verses 13 to 21 today, and we are going to be wrapping up this study like seven months after we started it almost, which is crazy because I never thought that we would uh, be in this book for this long. But um, as we conclude our study of the book of 1 John today, we have to once again remember what the point of this letter even was. That is, what was the purpose for John even writing it? It was to instill in his readers a sense of confident, bold assurance. The goal of this letter is that his readers would be confident that they had believed correctly and by believing correctly, they would have full confidence that they belonged to Christ. And this letter... As we've seen, I think, as we've gone through this study, this letter was very closely connected with his gospel testimony, the book of John. Uh, And of course, the purpose that he wrote that uh, was clearly stated in John chapter 20, verse 31, when he wrote uh, that, that the reason that he wrote his testimony was, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And if there is anything that comes even remotely close in terms of importance to believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing correctly we may have life in his name, if there's anything that's even remotely uh, close to being as important as that, it is having confidence, true and blessed assurance that we indeed do have this life in him. Only true assurance is blessed assurance. Let me say that again, because this is important. Only true assurance is blessed assurance. If you have false assurance, it is a cursed assurance. But true assurance, biblically based assurance, is a blessed assurance. Now, if you want to know the difference between a passionless and maybe even timid walk with Jesus and a joyfully bold walk with Jesus. I would say that having this sense of confidence before him is likely to be one of those things that would be the biggest difference between the two. Having confidence. The truth is that approaching almost any task without a sense of confidence is bound to be less than joyful. How about those Seahawks this year? Are they playing like they're they're loving it? Are they playing confident? Are they playing with confidence? No, and, you know, and, and, you know, this is why I've never tried skydiving, by the way. It's because I'm not entirely confident that I will, uh, you know, make it to the ground in one piece. I'm sure I'll make it to the ground, but one piece is the important part. And thus I have no interest in even trying, uh, to jump out of a plane, um, that's several thousand feet up in the air. The first time I ever drove a vehicle was in the desert outskirts of Las Vegas Uh, while there was still plenty of desert before it had been developed like it is today. My dad took me out to this desert road in his 1984 Chevy S10 Blazer. He stopped, he applied the emergency brake, he put it in neutral, he got out and he says, your turn. And so we switched spots, and this was not an automatic transmission, by the way. This was a manual transmission, and I'm thankful now that I learned with a manual transmission, but let me just tell you, I was not thankful at the time at all. Uh, So my dad explained to me how to use the clutch, how to shift, and all those things, and after listening to him, Oh, for about three minutes or so, he told me to give it a try. And so, you know, hey, what what could go wrong? We're not going to hit anything. We're out in the middle of the desert. You might hit a rock or something. But, you know, the place that we were, there weren't any, you know, there was no danger. Uh, you know, we're out in the middle of the desert. So I kept the, the clutch in. And, you know, with my left foot, and I put the car in first gear. I revved the engine up, gave it some gas, and I slowly tried to, you know, let the clutch out. And if you've uh, ever learned how to drive a manual, you know that first time it's not going to go well. Uh, Yeah, the the clutch did not come out slowly uh, or or whatever. But we jerked forward, the car died. And there we are in the middle of the desert, right? And my dad instructed me to, you know, go ahead, put the clutch in, start it up again, no big deal. And so I turned the key And nothing happened. And my dad looked over to see if I was applying the clutch, and and I I was. uh, and, And so he got out, he came around, and he tried to start it himself. And again, nothing happened. The battery was completely dead. And there's only one thing that you can do when your car breaks down out in the middle of the desert. And that is to pull out your cell phone and call for help, except this was 1987, way before the age of the cell phone, so then what do you do? You start walking. And man, it was, it was hot out there. It was really, really hot out there. And thankfully, it was only about a one or two mile walk. Worse than the heat, however, was the complete sense of discouragement that I was feeling. That's really, when I think back to that time, that's really what stands out in my mind was the discouragement that I was overwhelmed with. I had lost all confidence in my ability to learn how to drive. And in fact, I hated the idea of getting behind the wheel again. And so even though my dad was urging me and urging me, you know, in the weeks to come to to give it another try, I went months before even daring to try it again. So what difference does confidence make? It makes a lot. Whether we're talking about learning to drive or walking closely with Jesus, it makes all the difference in the world. It's the difference between an experience that is so frightening or intimidating that it's you know, something that we almost wish that we could completely avoid, and an experience that is vibrant and thriving and exciting and joyful. So why have we studied the book of 1 John? In order that we may gain confidence in our walk with Jesus, in order that we may have assurance, and not just any assurance— but true biblical assurance that God has redeemed us, that God loves us, that he is for us, and that he abides in us, and that he will never let us go. Now, John revealed to us in the previous passage that eternal life is found only in Christ. That was the testimony of God regarding his son. And we saw, as we have so many times throughout this study, that the idea that you can be a Christian and yet bear no fruit, is absolutely impossible. In fact, it is entirely foreign to Scripture. If it were possible for a Christian to remain in their sin and to experience not even an iota of change, then the book of First John is a waste of paper. And John would have been way out of line to say that these false teachers who had, you know, borne bad fruit, given all this bad fruit from the flesh, uh, you know, he would have been way out of line to say they're not one of us. How would he know? Maybe they just haven't changed. John would have been wrong when he said that a child of God does not sin persistently and habitually, if it were possible for a Christian to never bear fruit. And I don't think that we even want to go there where we start questioning whether John was right or wrong, because the moment we start doubting the Bible is the moment that we start doubting God's testimony, and that's the moment that we stop trusting in God's testimony, and that is perilous territory. And so John wraps up this epistle by giving us five things that we're going to look at today, that every Christian, everyone who is truly redeemed can have confidence toward. The first is revealed in verse 13, and that's the, the, the reason that he wrote this whole letter. First and foremost, he tells us that we can have confident, blessed assurance that God has saved us and that we have eternal life in Christ. John writes in verse 13, 1 John chapter 5, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John says, I, I've written these things. What are, what are these things that he's referring to? Well, it's, it's everything that he's written up to this point. The entire book of 1 John has been a battery of tests which have been designed by God himself to identify legitimate saving faith and to distinguish true faith from false faith, illegitimate faith. The evangelical community in our country almost acts as if there is no such thing as illegitimate faith. The tried and true tests of legitimate faith, as far as most self-professing Christians in our country are concerned, is whether or not a person has prayed the so-called sinner's prayer, which is completely, as we've seen, unbiblical. It's not unbiblical for a sinner to, to repent and to beg God for forgiveness, but it is unbiblical to think, well, I'm saved because I said these words. The true test of faith, of true faith, is never to look back, to just look back at a moment when your emotions could have very well been manipulated in a moment of weakness and you repeated a prayer word for word after somebody else. Instead, the Bible always, always, always challenges us in the present. What do you believe? What do you believe right now? Have you been changed between the time that you put your faith in Christ for the first time and the present moment? Have you been changed? In Paul's words, he says this in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves, present tense, to see whether you are are in the faith, present tense, test yourselves, present tense, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, present tense, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Present tense. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Be all the more diligent, present tense, be, present tense, to confirm your calling and election, present tense, for if you practice, present tense, these qualities, you will never fall, present tense, carrying effects into the future. The biblical model for finding certainty is always to look at the present. Compare it with the past, but look at the present. And John, throughout this book, he's given us many, many, many tests, many angles from which we are able to examine ourselves rightly. And as we've noted previously, there are essentially three categories that, these, that all these tests would fall under. Tests that reveal whether or not we believe correctly correctly, Tests that reveal whether or not we love correctly and tests that reveal whether or not we are obeying, whether we are eagerly obeying the Lord. And all, you know that would probably uh, fall under the category of loving correctly, technically, because we've seen, as Jesus said, if we love Jesus, there are no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We will obey him. We will. And our obedience will be joyful, rather than a burden. So God wants us to have assurance. He wants us to have bold confidence in the fact that we have been born of God and that we are his children, but he wants our assurance to be a true assurance, and that means taking the right tests and applying them to our lives in the present moment. If you believe right now that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if you eagerly pursue obedience right now and don't find it burdensome to pursue obedience, and, and you know that you've done this if you have indeed grown and continue to grow in Christ's likeness, and if you love God and people, especially God's people, with a biblical love, you can have all confidence that you indeed do have eternal life in Christ. You have it today. You will have it when you wake up tomorrow. You will have it on your deathbed and you will have it into eternity. And this will be evidenced by the, fa- by the fact that you continue to see God making changes in you. And those changes will be demonstra- uh, demonstrably evident by your growth in believing correctly, in loving correctly, and in obeying eagerly. And as you do, as you find these things in your life and see yourselves growing in these three things, my prayer for you is that your confidence in and your desire to please Christ will increase as your confidence in and your desire to please the flesh decreases. Your desire and your love for Christ increases. Your trust in the flesh decreases because nothing and nobody is worth trusting or believing or loving more than Jesus. And so my prayer is that we would continue learning to trust and to desire Jesus more than anything or anyone, even our own selves. Speaking of prayer, that leads us into the second thing that John tells us that we can be confident about. The first thing that we can be confident about is that We have life in Christ. The second thing that we can be confident about is that God will hear and answer the prayers of his children. And John continues by writing one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. And this is one that has left some of the greatest theologians in history completely confused and perplexed. Just a warning up in advance. So John continues by writing in verses 14 to 17. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So now you know why we have like 26 lessons in this book. Now you know why I like kind of tiptoed through this whole book. It's because I needed enough time to figure out exactly what John means there. I'm kidding, uh, really. um, But in all seriousness, one of the wonderful things about preaching verse by verse through a Bible uh, passage or through a a Bible, you know, book in the Bible, one of the wonderful things is that it forces me to study and to preach on verses and passages that I'm uncomfortable with or that I don't completely understand or that are just difficult. So no cherry picking when you're going verse by verse. And I I love that about expositional, uh, expositional preaching. And believe me when I say that, I don't know if I have ever spent so much time thinking and praying and studying for a passage. And the key to understanding this passage correctly is to understand the point that John is trying to make. And he makes it in the first couple verses here. He says that we can have confidence that God hears and answers our prayers. But it all starts with one very important clarification. When we ask anything according to his will. God answers every prayer, I guess, in in one way or another, right? But for the person who says, you know, I I would pray more, but man, I, I just don't see God answering my prayers. We have to understand that it's not that God isn't answering their prayers. Rather, it might be as simple as the possibility that they are praying for things that are not within God's sovereign will. And the issue of prayer is something that John has touched on briefly. He he covered it back in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when he wrote, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Because why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So taking all these together, all these things that John has said about prayer together, we can know that God answers our prayers positively when, one, we are keeping his commands, two, we are doing the things that please him, and three, we are asking in accordance with his will. And so if you're not seeing God answering your prayers positively, Look at these three things. These are the three conditions. These are the three conditions. The problem isn't that he's not hearing. If it appears that he isn't hearing our prayers or isn't answering our prayers positively, we have to go back and make sure that we're, we're doing these things. How do we know if we're, we're keeping his commands? How do we know if we're doing the things that, pleases, that, that please him? How do we know if we're asking for things that are in accordance with his will? This book right here. It has it all in there. It's it's all in his word. So we we get these things. We understand these things by studying his word. It's all in there. And it's just a gold mine that's just waiting for us to dig in if we want to know how to be obedient to him, if we want to know how to live a life that's pleasing to him, if we want to know what his will is. See, we have to understand that God isn't just a cosmic vending machine or a genie who is at our beck and call, you know, you need something, so you you better go to church this week, you know, so that God will give you favor. That's not how God works. God is sovereign, and he does not desire for you to pray in order that your will would be accomplished by using him. He desires that you would pray in order that your will May be brought into alignment with his. What God wants for you is always better than what you want for yourself. What God wants for you is always way better than what you want for yourself. As one commentator notes, quote, God wants to give you what you would want God to give you if you are wise enough to want it. End quote. And now John is going to illustrate this principle of God answering his children's prayers positively with two verses that have more explanations than any other two verses I've ever come across. These two verses, verses 16 and 17, have led the Roman Catholic Church to wrongly distinguish between uh, venial sin and mortal sin, that is, sin that can be forgiven or sin that can't be forgiven. So let's just start with the first part of verse 16. John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Let's just stop there. John presents a hypothetical scenario for us here. Let's say that you catch a brother and sister in Christ, in the act of sinning. This is talking about catching them in the act, seeing it with your own two eyes. Literally translated, it would read sinning a sin. You ever think, you think that's ever happened? You think a Christian's ever caught another Christian sinning? Of course it has, right? It's inevitable that the flesh will get the best of us, from time to time. On occasion, we aren't sinless, but as a people who have been redeemed by a holy master, we should sin less. We know what we're supposed to do when we sin, right? We know what we're supposed to do when we sin. We're to confess and to repent of our sin before the Lord, and he is faithful and just to forgive us. But what do we do when we see somebody else sinning? What do we do when we catch it with our own eyes, when we, we see it? And it doesn't look like they're turning from it in the moment. They're just doing it, and maybe they're not even aware of it. What are we supposed to do? The first thing that John says we should do is pray for them. Pray for them. We're not to point fingers, oh, such and such is doing this and that. We aren't to gossip or slander, or even disassociate with the person, at least not yet. And we aren't even directly to, uh, to, to go to the person and confront them, at least not yet. First, we should humble ourselves before the Lord and pray. And while we're there, while we're praying, it might be a good idea to make sure that we're not holding that person to a higher standard than we hold ourselves So pray for them. Pray for them to be convicted. Pray for them to repent and turn from their sin. Pray for God to forgive them, to give them life. And God will answer this intercessory prayer on the behalf of another children, another Christian, another child of God. And that's significant here. He does say it's a brother. It's a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And he will answer this prayer by giving them life. The question is, if we're trying to figure out what that means for God to give them life, what, what does it mean to have life? Is John speaking in physical terms, or is he speaking in spiritual terms? He's speaking in spiritual terms. Spiritual terms, that's what he's using here. Remember that John was talking about the life that we have in Christ in the previous passage, eternal life, which Jesus defined in John chapter 17, verse 3, as those whom the Father has, uh, has given him, having an intimate fellowship with God. And so if the party who is caught in the act of sinning is truly a child of God, your prayer will be answered positively. God will convict that person of their sin. He will do what is necessary to bring about confession and repentance from that person, even if it means disciplining them And he will maintain fellowship with that person because reconciliation and the growth in Christ's likeness of his children are things that are in accordance with the will of God. This is what he desires. He desires to maintain fellowship with his children. He desires to forgive the sins of his children. He desires for them to grow in Christ's likeness. Okay, you with me so far? Is that, making, is that making sense? I hope so, because this is where it gets tricky. John then says, continuing into the second part of verse 16 and 17, he says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. That's tricky, isn't it? The first thing that we have to realize when we're looking at this, is that John appears to be talking about a different person. The first one was a child of God. The second hypothetical person is not. And there have been encyclopedia volumes worth of speculation written about sin that leads unto death. But we have to notice something. John doesn't say that there is the sin that leads to death, nor does he say that there is a sin that leads to death, if he had written it you know, either of those ways, then there might be a good reason to speculate about what specific sin or, or sins maybe uh, he, he might be talking about. But no, John is talking about sin in general, general terms, and thus he doesn't use the definite article, the, or the indefinite article, a, in conjunction with the phrase sin that leads to death. And that's a very important detail that we have to take into account when we're trying to understand this. So we can be confident that John is not saying that there is a specific sin that will result in God just striking anyone who commits it dead on the spot, and there's not a specific sin that will cause a person to lose or or forfeit their salvation. The second understanding that people have about this passage is that it's referring to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't fit with the context here at all. That's kind of, that would be kind of obscure. Uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as, as Jesus defined it, was very specific to the context, to the immediate context that Jesus was in. People were watching him with their own eyes, doing all these miracles, miracle after miracle after miracle, right before their very eyes, and their explanation for his power to do so was to say, well, it, it must, be, must be Satan. It must be the devil. It is impossible for anyone today to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because it's a completely different context. So this is not talking about a sin that God refuses to forgive. There is no sin that God is incapable of forgiving. The third understanding is the one that I believe is most likely to be correct. That the difference between sin that does not lead to death and sin that does lead to death is all dependent upon what the person, what the individual does with that sin. The wage of sin is death. Romans 6.23, that is any sin. The biggest sin, the smallest sin. They have the same payoff, death. All sin leads to death, spiritual death, of course. But sin that is confessed sin that is repented of, sin that is brought before the throne of God and laid at the feet of Christ is covered by His blood. And this fits with everything that John has taught us about the impossibility of a child of God sinning habitually and never turning away from it. So what does it mean to sin unto death? To sin unto death means to have a heart that is cold and hard, and unswervingly rebellious against God, hates God, and thus would reject God's offer of grace and love and mercy until the day they die, until their very last breath. There is sin that does not lead to death, however, and that is sin that is confessed and sin that is repented of, sin that was imputed to Christ as he hung on the cross, because that's where that sin was dealt with. God's wrath was poured out on that sin. And if you are in Christ, that sin has been paid for in full by Christ. God has taken it from you. He has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west, and he exchanged it for his own righteousness. Our sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us. And then John says something that might be kind of confusing. Again, he says, I'm not saying that you should pray for sin that a person refuses to turn from. It's basically what he's saying. Note that he doesn't say, I'm I'm telling you not to pray. There's a difference between I'm telling you not to pray and I'm not telling you to pray. He says, I'm, I'm not saying that you should pray for someone who sins habitually without confessing or repenting of that sin. In other words, he's telling us that we can pray for that person, but ultimately he's leaving that decision exactly where it belongs, and that is between you and the Lord, between the individual and God. And the point is this, in the context of what John's saying here, the point is this, there is no guarantee that if you pray for someone who is not a child of God, to turn from their sin, there is no guarantee that that prayer will be answered positively. The person who is sinning habitually, practicing sin, without repenting, without confessing, sinning unto death, might continue to do so until their last breath. And if you're praying for this person to be forgiven and to be reconciled unto God, it might happen. It might not there are no promises that it will happen. And that's the context here. John's talking about God hearing the prayers of his children and answering positively. So John says, I'm not saying to pray about that because there's no guarantee that he will answer that one the way that you want him to. I'm reminded of how God Finally, he had to tell the prophet Jeremiah, who was praying for his idol-worshiping countrymen. He says this in Jeremiah 7, verse 16. He says this to Jeremiah. He says, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry, or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. And you might ask, why would God tell anyone to stop praying for those who refuse to turn from their sin? And that's a fair question. It's a good question. I think it has to do with the intimacy of the heart that's involved in prayer. Intercessory prayer involves taking up another person's cause, another person's burden. And to an extent, it involves identifying with that person. But we've got to understand that God is going to do what God's going to do. And at some point, we have to side with God. We have to remember, we have to affirm, be willing to affirm that God is righteous and holy in any judgment that he passes. And so our loyalty must first and foremost be unto God with the understanding that he is perfectly just, that he is perfectly righteous. And the Christian life, we have to understand this too, the Christian life is not intended to be filled with overwhelming burdens. So if we reach the point where our burden for others extinguishes or diminishes the joy that we have in the Lord, it might be wise to lighten our load, so to speak. And John is basically saying, God gives us permission to do that. And while I believe that this is the correct understanding of this passage, I do want to issue a word of caution against being too dogmatic about passages that are obscure, like this one, that are difficult to understand, like this one. We want to save our dogmatism for passages that are crystal clear and which reflect a theme which echoes throughout Scripture. One thing that everybody, everybody who tries to understand this passage will agree on regarding sin is that the wage of any sin is death and thus any sin and every sin must be confessed it must be repented of turned from and we must strive to break free from its influence in our lives that much there is no debate about and that brings us to our third point and we're going to go through the remaining points fairly quickly here So the first thing we can have confidence of is that we have eternal life in Christ. Secondly, we can be confident that God hears and answers our prayers. Third, the believer can be confident that in Christ we have victory over sin and that the evil one will not touch us. So John writes, verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now this is, again, a very important theme, a central theme in John's letters, and it's worth repeating as something of a, of a postscript. You know, it's like he's saying, P.S., as he brings this letter to a close. He reminds us that nobody who has been born of God, regenerated by God's sovereign work, continues to sin habitually if they do continue to sin without confessing it without turning away from it it's what john was just referring to in the previous passages it is sin unto death the reason that we know that everyone who's been born of god does not keep on sinning is because we know that those who are truly born of god will love him rightly and will believe in him rightly and thus will behave rightly Again, we won't be perfect, but we're looking for direction, not perfection. We're looking for progress. And John says, he who was born of God protects him. Who's he referring to here? It seems pretty obvious. He's referring to Jesus. He's referring to Christ. This, the, the child of God is protected by Christ and is thus guaranteed victory over sin and will not be touched by the evil one, by Satan, by the devil. Jesus has redeemed us. Jesus now abides in us as we abide in him, and because he's in us, and because he's greater than the most powerful sin, and because he is greater than the evil one, sin will not remain unbroken in our lives because Jesus is in us, and Jesus is for us, and Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, tells us that he is now interceding for his people in heaven in his heavenly ministry. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays to the Father and he says this, I do not ask that you, he's speaking of his people, those whom the Father has given to him. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And that prayer is still being answered to this day. Why? Because it's within the will of God. It's within the will of God that nobody, that the evil one cannot harm any of us. No Christian will be harmed by the evil one. Fourth, John tells us that we can be confident that we belong to God. He says this in verse 19. We know that we are from God And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one cannot lay a single finger on the child of God, but conversely, the whole world lies in the hand, in the power of the evil one, of Satan. There really are only two types of people. There are children of wrath, and there are children of God. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. We are described in Scripture as being aliens and strangers in this world. And our true citizenship, our loyalty, first and foremost, isn't to a country or to a political ideology. It is first and foremost to Christ, because our citizenship is first and foremost in heaven. As John MacArthur notes, he says, quote, There is no middle ground, no third option everyone is part of God's kingdom or Satan's, end quote. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 23, he says, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. This kingdom of darkness that lies in the hands of Satan hates God. And because they hate God, they hate righteousness. Righteousness. And they love the very depravity, the very sin which blinds them and prevents them from seeing the glorious beauty of Christ. Those who are part of this evil world system hate God's people and will not hesitate to mock, to insult, or to even physically harm the child of God who strives to live in humble, faithful, loving obedience to God. But if there's anything that we can know, it's this. It's that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. We can be confident that we belong to him, that he will protect us, at least spiritually, and that nothing and no one will ever take us out of his hand. Fifth, fifth, And finally, we can be confident that we affirm what is true. John writes this. He says in verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. In verses 1-4 to of the first chapter, John started off this whole letter by telling us of the coming of the word of life. He now concludes this letter with a statement of certainty, leaving no doubt in the minds of his readers that the Son of God has come. Note that it doesn't say that he came. It says that he has come. In other words, he came and he is still present. In fact, Jesus promised that he would always be with his people even to the end of the age. Jesus said, "All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." Luke 10:22 one of the common cultural slogans that we'll hear is that we all worship the same God, right? Muslims, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, we all worship the same God. That is heresy. That is completely false, completely unbiblical. It is heretical. The Bible clearly teaches that the only way to know and to worship God is through Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is all about as Jesus defined it in John 17.3, which we covered last week. That's what eternal life is all about. No one who is outside of Christ can worship God and nobody who's outside of Christ can know God. But for those in Christ, he has given us understanding. He has chosen to reveal these things to us. We have been granted understanding in order that we may know God, in order that we may have fellowship with God, close, intimate fellowship with God, and in order that we may have life everlasting in him. Now John adds something of a postscript again, almost an afterthought, and yet it is central to everything that he's written. It's crucial that we understand this last point in our Christian walk. He writes this, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. What's an idol? Well, we covered that back in Judges pretty extensively. An idol is anything that we treasure more than Christ. Anything that we love more than God. Anything that we find more important in, anything that we find more value in, anything that we would rather think about or do, and it's at the root of every single sin. You, you, can, you can come up with any sin. I, I could show you where idolatry is ultimately at the root of that sin. To remain unrepentantly in sin is to remain unrepentantly in idolatry and by writing this by, con- by concluding his letter with this it's almost like he's saving one of the most important things for last you know before my, my son left for college the last thing I said to him was what I felt like the most important thing in the world was for him to know because I want that to stick with him the last thing I said I want that to stick with him And of course, that was abide, you know, walk with Jesus. Keep your walk with Jesus strong. And this is John's way of reminding us of something that's very important, reminding us to keep our hearts and our minds pure before the Lord and to refuse, to refuse to allow anything or anyone To stand in the way of our growth in Christ's likeness. Of our pursuit of obedience to him. Because that is where we really, truly experience the joy of blessed, confident assurance that God has redeemed us. That he is for us that He abides within us, and most importantly, that He has given us eternal life in His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the tests that we've gone through over and over again as we've gone through your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we examine our lives right now, that we would have this confidence before you, this joyful and blessed assurance, because our assurance is firmly rooted in your word, in the test that you have given us through your word, and we believe your testimony. We trust it. And we trust your son. Thank you, Lord, that we may know that we have eternal life in Christ through your word. And I pray, Lord, that that confidence that we can gather from seeing how you have changed us, seeing how you are working in us to conform us to the image of your Son, we see that it's evident in our lives, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that your work in us would continue. And that as it continues, we would become more like Christ. And that as we become more like Christ, we would become more obedient unto you. And we know, Lord, that these prayers will be answered because this is your will for your children. And so we ask them in the name of Christ. Was so much this message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcasts.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org.